0: You're listening to You in the Ring here on CFUV, your weekly roundup of campus news and events. I am your host, Hugo Wong. Uh, Today on the show, we're going to be featuring some highlights from the uh, LNG panel that happened just a little while ago. And we're also going to be talking to uh, the Martlet for news and events that's happening this week. Uh, And we're also going to have a little talk about the U.S. election, (laughs) Uh, that surprising thing, and how that might affect people here in B.C. and in Canada. But first, If I Were in a Cage, I'd Reach Out to You is a new volume of poetry that's being described as love letters to the uncomfortable, the unfathomable and the unaltered geographies that define our own misshapen understandings of the world. It's the debut book from recent UVic alumnus Adele Barkley. Adele joins me now on the phone from Montreal to talk about her poetry. Hello.
1: Hello. Um,
0: now, you're you're calling from Montreal and you've just started a, a tour of the East Coast. Is this the first time that you've toured? Uh, yeah,
1: this is my first book tour. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I mean, I've... I've I used to live out here, and I've been out here several times, but yeah, this feels particularly um, special to to land, and yeah, have a whole bunch of readings lined up, and people to
2: meet.
0: Mm -hmm. So you're like going into Ontario, but you're also uh, dipping into Brooklyn, as I understand?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm reading at Pearl's Brooklyn Poetry uh, Bookshop, uh, December 1st. So that'll be really exciting. Um, especially, yeah, I, I started writing the manuscript when I was uh, in Brooklyn for a few months doing research for my dissertation. So it feels very full circle in a lot of ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the book is called If I Were in a Cage, I'd Reach Out to You.
1: Where did that title come from? Um, it's, it's actually If I Were in a Cage, I'd Reach Out for You. For You, sorry. I know, there's a lot of words. It's, um, the, there's actually a UVic connection. Um, when I was teaching... Um, First Year English, um, I had use of this office in Clarahue, and the office had this really creepy piece of children's art posted onto the board, and it was, like, done by a child, and it said, Mommy, if I were in a cage, I'd reach out for you, and there's Hmm. a picture of a child in a cage, and that really stuck with me Um, as something very odd and creepy and bizarre. So, yeah, I sort of had that phrase in my back pocket. And then, um, I don't know, I decided to to title the book that. Is sort of like an inside joke. But also, what I like about it is, like, if I were is in the subjunctive mood, which mm-hmm. is a really rare, like, grammatical mood in English. Like, it's used a lot more in French. Um, and it's, like, to denote things that are, like, impossible or uncertain or desired. Like, if I were, you're, like, were kind of, denotes this, like, other space where you're just thinking um, about possibilities or impossibilities. And for me, I think that's kind of what poetry does. It articulates the impossible, the paradoxical, the uncertain, as well as our desires.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Now, you recently finished your PhD at UVic, um, Mm -hmm. and did your doctoral dissertation affect the the subject matter that you chose or any other aspects of of your resulting work?
1: I don't think so. Like, I think they were very, very separate projects. That being said, I'm sure there are ways, like, they informed each other, because I was working on them at the same time I was writing the Book of Poetry, and then I was writing a dissertation on American poetry at the same time. Um, So even though those are two, like, academic writing is a very different practice for me than writing poetry, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure it infiltrated it. But it's maybe in ways, like, I can't really see because I'm too close to it, but... Um, yeah, one of my committee members, Ian Higgins, like he, he pointed out some sort of resonances where he's like, okay, because I, I studied poetry and film. And he's like, okay, there's a lot of like, you know, montage and juxtaposition and these kind of like very stark uh, contrasting images, which is kind of similar to a lot of like the avant-garde film, you know, you were, you were researching. Um, and I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure Rich and HD, you know, have had influences on my voice. Um, but it's hard for me to parse out. I'm too close to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and where do you draw your inspiration from?
1: Um, a lot from people and places. I'm I'm really, really drawn to to other people. And I'm endlessly infatuated with humans and, and the relationships we build with each other, as well as uh, our, our relationships with place. And so, yeah, a lot of the poems are about different cities, different places. A lot of them are are letters. A lot of them address friends. Hmm. Um, Yeah, so I think, yeah, I'm very, very um, excited or or intrigued by, um, yeah, how how we build worlds with each other through language. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And if your friends are uh, at least some part of the subject matter, do you find that, like, they recognize themselves when you show them?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean I, I often address them by name <laughs> like, hmm. very, very baldly. Um yeah, yeah, and that's always an interesting um experience from like, Hey, I wrote a poem about you or about us. Um and I mean for the most part I think I think they're pleased.
0: hmm But it must be interesting sort of when you have another person who uh, has a certain take or an opinion uh, mm-hmm. on a relationship and then yours and how they are how they, uh, the same or, or how they change. Mm-hmm.
3: Um.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess like the nice thing about poetry, or at least with these poems, like I'm not necessarily trying to like articulate like a thesis or really like point at a lot of it is just kind of about, like the mood and texture. So yeah, like I have a series of poems to my friend Sarah and they, they kind of structure the book um and she's like no like that's us she's like i you, you get, it gets kind of can get kind of abstract and she's like no like that's kind of like the mood that's the texture of of our dynamic so i'm not trying to like really like kind of define it necessarily but just sort of like pay homage to it or just sort of bring it into relief
2: mhm uh
0: now are, have you noticed that any are there any like uh like sort of common themes in the poetry have you seen uh, like the, any through lines
1: um, yeah, I think, again, I, I'm kind of drawn to a lot of tensions and paradoxes, so I think a lot of the poems maybe grapple with, like, um, yeah, the rural and the urban, the intimate and the public, um, yeah, transcendent mm-hmm. transcendence mm-hmm. and objection, and just trying to kind of hold these, like, disparate things uh, at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and do you find that there are particular poets that really influence your work?
1: Oh, oh yes. Um, I think uh, Dorothy Lasky, who's an American poet, she's, she's very bold, she's very brazen, she's very strange. And um, I don't think I write like her, but just reading her and going to like the really like bold, weird places she goes, Opened me up in a lot of ways. Um, Eileen Mild, again, another another American poet, and she is she's so smart, but she has this very like colloquial uh, diction, mm-hmm. even as she's like saying very strange or or very very profound things. Um, yeah, no, there I definitely read a lot of other poets to, to kind of open my voice up. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and you know, in in talking with writers and in in reading about them, all sort of have their their sort of traditions and superstitions when it comes to the actual mm-hmm. writing process. Um, are there any particular places, like sort of favorite haunts, that you you like to to write in or sort keep consistent? I,
1: mm, that's a good question. I like to I like to write when I'm traveling, when I'm moving, like when I'm on a train, hmm. um, when I'm on a bus, when I'm you know. In some sort of station, waiting to get on a train or a bus or a ferry, hmm. right on the, on the west coast. Lots, lots of lots of time spent on ferries, or waiting for them. Um, yeah, so there's something about when I'm in movement that kind of like shakes things up and then stirs sort of things up, and then I have to like resettle it through writing.
2: Hmm. Um,
0: and
1: uh,
0: was there anything that you, that you wanted to uh, uh, to read or or <laughs>
1: Yeah, anything sure. Why don't I read one of one of the Sarah poems to help illuminate? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these sure. Is,
0: is there anything that would put it into some context?
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's a series of poems um that structure the book. So, I don't have a lot of narrative. Like my poetry isn't very narrative. Like it doesn't really like tell like a very definite story. Like I guess it tells stories, but in more like kind of like abstract, swirling ways. Um and, but there are, there's a series of poems addressed to my friend Sarah, and, and each one starts each section. Um, and that kind of, it's, it's got a little bit of like travel narrative. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, this one is the one that ends the uh, ends the collection. It's called Dear Sarah Six. Dear Sarah Six, You're drunk in Bushwick, will cherry blossoms rank and clog the gutters of my East Van neighborhood. I cast spells with emojis, sparkling heart, crystal ball, the cosmos, black cat. I'm worried my magic is all aesthetic, but my grandmother is a medium in Paris, which lets me know I'm half French and a quarter psychic. I can tell when people talk shit and when my lover is cheap. but that's about it. Sometimes I summon my powers to throw a great party, the kind where everyone feels fed and alive. You said you're dreaming of eating tacos in a tortilla factory down the street from where I started writing you these poems a year and a half ago. Sarah, I can't close the circle without you.
0: That was awesome.
1: Thank
0: you. Um do you know sort of what's next for you? Is it too early to tell since you're in this in this tour?
1: Um yeah, i am in a definitely in like a transitional time. I, I just finished my PhD, I just published this book. Um what's what's next? I'm well I, I recently became the critic in residence for the Canadian Women in Literary Art, mm. um, which is an organization that centers feminist and social justice issues and how they relate to uh, our, our current literary theme in Canada, um, so I think I'll be writing. Yeah, for that definitely I'll be writing a lot of like nonfiction essays and book reviews and kind of focusing on sort of feminist literary criticism. So that's kind of what's coming up on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I, I do. Um, I am thinking of you know other other poems, another collection that's maybe going in a different direction. Um, We'll see. Yeah, but a, a lot is up in the air right now, which mm-hmm. is kind of exciting.
0: And I guess now that you're traveling on tour, like is that is that an ideal time for you to write? Now that you're traveling, or do you just have this other thing on your mind?
1: Um, yeah, no, it, it it is it is ideal. I mean, I'm, I'm you know reuniting with all the friends and family and folks, and that and I'm visiting yeah a lot of different cities. So that that's pretty much the recipe for writing mm-hmm. for
2: me.
0: That's awesome. Um,
1: so we'll see what comes of it. <laughs>
0: We'll have to leave it there. Adele, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Adele Barkley recently finished her PhD at UVic and just published a book of poetry. If I Were in a Cage, I'd Reach Out for You is available from Nightwood Editions. Now, in September of this year, uh, the federal government gave conditional approval for a new LNG pipeline to be built across B.C., Earlier this month, there was a panel discussion here at UVic joining me now are the two chairs uh, and organizers of that event. Good morning. Hello. Good morning, Hugo. Um, Could you introduce yourselves uh, for the folks listening?
4: Yeah, my name is uh, Richard Rickard. I am a third year geography student at UVic and I am one of the co-chairs for the Society of Geography Students.
5: And I'm Josh Taz. I'm also a third-year geography student, and I'm also a co-chair of the Society of Geography Students.
0: Um, and uh, for those who, who weren't at the panel, could you give us a brief overview of um, what it was called and sort of what, uh, what the overall theme was, I
4: guess?
5: So our, our title of it was um, Pacific uh, Northwest LNG, um, new pipeline, same pipeline. Same new problems yeah new problems Um, and what it was it was a collective of um, we partnered with the um, Pacific uh, Center of Law and Litigation um, all their acronym is Cell, and they're a new uh, group out of the um, law program here at UVic, um, and they launched uh, together with Skeena Wild litigation um, against the federal government um, and the and this pipeline project. So what it was, it was a, it was a celebration of that litigation, as well as just an information session um, about you know people. Uh, so we had um, Greg.
4: Yeah, we were really uh, really honored with the panelists that we had. We had Greg Knox yeah. and. Uh, Dr. Heidi Stark, as well as Andrew Weaver, the uh, leader of the BC Green Party,
5: and um, uh, just a little background. Greg Knox is the um, he's the executive director of uh, Skeena Wild, uh, which is a non for profit um, organization who likes to protect the environment and salmon. And uh, Dr. Stark is a political science professor here at Uvic.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And you brought with us uh, sort of a clip of audio highlights from the event. Um, did you want to introduce the, the first clip at all? It's just about a minute.
4: Yeah, sure. Well, uh, it's just nice to introduce the topics to the people there. Uh, our stance with our guests wasn't exactly pro-pipeline. As you'll hear from this first clip, uh, this one actually kind of speaks for itself, so why don't you just go ahead and play it.
2: We have a new, relatively new federal government who made some pretty incredible promises, even put their mandate letters out to the public, which outlined the fact that they were going to change their relationship with First Nations and Aboriginal communities. Thank you very much for the invitation to be here. It's an honor to be here in
4: First Peoples House. My, my foray into this topic is as somebody who stood alone in the BC legislature for the first number of years, pointing out the folly of um, walking into the LNG uh, Quagmire. Uh, Back in 2012, uh, I was saying it then, as I'm saying it now, there is no global market for LNG.
1: (laughs) Discussions, secondly, are framed around indigenous participation in the proposed project instead of around questions of indigenous jurisdiction and territorial rights and responsibility.
4: As you could hear uh, in that last clip, our panel primarily focused on three issues Uh, the environmental review process and the uh, now litigation judicial review which the ELC is filing to uh, try and take them to court and then also the actual uh, indigenous consultation process which wasn't very well um, handled so far by our province and the third topic uh, was climate change and uh, British Columbia's mandate and our commitment to actually try and reduce greenhouse gases by eighty percent of 2007 levels by 2050 so our panelists spoke much to the disconnect between our federal and our provincial policy and now what our current government is trying to um, push this project ahead in partnership also using it as a platform to uh, Work on the Sitec Dam to provide power for it, so it's a pretty in- important topic today.
5: Yeah, and that was and, and that was Andrew Reaver, um just discussing what was going on, and I found it was very. Our our goal for the panel was to have people who could speak from multiple sides. So Andrew Reaver was talking um, from the political aspect, and we had Dr. Stark, who was the woman speaking afterwards. Uh, she was more of the indigenous. Um, aspect and of course he had kind of more of biological and local aspect from um, Greg Knox. Let's see
0: if we can let's see if we can deal with each of those in turn. Um, so from a political standpoint, um, you know Andrew Weaver has been against it. But obviously the the liberal government we have here is uh, very much in favor. What kind of What's pushing the incumbent government to, to push for the pipeline as strongly as it has been? And uh, has uh, Weaver's opposition had any effect on the process?
5: Well, I think, um, and this is actually start with the second part of your question, is I don't think um, he has had much effect so far um, just because um, he's speaking from more of the provincial standpoint. Um And of course, you know, with uh, the liberal government, they're very uh, they're very pro um, pipeline LNG. So uh, it's it's kind of a tough push at this moment. Um, And with regarding to your um, your first question, I don't know what do you what do you think about that there?
4: I think that uh, our government has been focused uh, during its uh, tenure on a lot of economic issues and job creation, and. Andrew Weaver made some really, you know, well put points that, honestly, the economic argument for this project doesn't make sense. Um, British Columbia is trying to grow what it sees as a huge potential commodities market in liquid natural gas, but the market is now being inundated with tons of natural gas from other. Uh, countries that don't have the same environmental regulations, such as
5: Iran, I think was one of them,
4: as Canada. And how can British Columbia compete uh, with countries that don't have the same environmental oversight? Or, and also uh, the reserves are much, place?
5: much larger, too. So mm-hmm. the, uh,
0: the, the way I understand it, a lot of the the reason why the price has descended, how uh, as far as it has is because of the advent of hydraulic fracturing in the United States. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because not
4: everybody makes that connection, actually. Not everyone associates liquid natural gas and fracking for many people.
0: Hmm. Um, One other uh, sort of political question is that the federal government has offered its conditional approval, uh, but now it's up to um, the company to actually build it. Or to decide to build it, um, or would it be fair to say that we're in a like a holding pattern right now?
5: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I can't remember the exact number, but I think there was a, like a, a hundred and fifty um, uh, points that that they had to meet before they get approval. So it's conditional mm-hmm. approval. Mm-hmm. But um, so I think we are at a standpoint. Um, but it's really tough to say when we're going to hear some more information about this.
4: Uh, if we have time to listen to another uh, clip, actually, uh, Greg Knox makes an eloquent point to what you were just saying about how uh, Petronas, the parent company of Pacific Northwest, LNG, actually got to hire a bunch of the uh, environmental assessment firms, which did the assessment for their project. And then they kind of get a handpick, you know, whichever one is hmm. in their favor the most. So,
0: Okay, let's see if I can pull that up
2: governance structures in place and there's leaders in place that have been put in place through the traditional governance structures and most of the time those people are completely ignored Is we have the proponents paying for, controlling and manipulating the scientific evidence that's being used to justify the environmental assessment certificates and it's quite disgusting what I see this as I see Pacific Northwest LNG Petronas's project is the poster child of how the development process is broken in this country, and it also provides a unique opportunity to fix it.
0: So give us uh, a little bit of background on sort of what we heard there.
2: So that was
4: uh, Greg Knox speaking about the environmental review, and um, you know, there's five Swimshan First Nations that uh, occupy land and territory right around Prince Rupert, where this proposed plant, uh, liquid natural gas plant, and the adjacent pipeline will be, and uh, they have tried to include themselves in the environmental review, and uh, well, you know, Petronas has kind of walked through the paces of it, they've actually really not heard many of their concerns, and much of what they did say didn't end up in the official environmental review.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, is this the kind of situation where the, where the consultation process kind of, like, very much has an end goal? in mind, and, like, they're kind of just, you know, walking Absolutely. through.
4: Absolutely. I mean, the end goal is the $54 billion price tag on yep. this project. that's, that's well, the end goal is to
5: get this on the ground, right? <laughs> that's <laughs> where our
4: government sees. Um, so, yeah, it, it kind of shows it's disheartening because it shows how the system can be tailor-made for the right bidder.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so w- what are the kinds of legal avenues that are open for... Um, for indigenous nations to na- to take between now and now and then?
5: Well, as mentioned previously, um, any kind of support they can, I believe there's, um, I think three or four different, um, litigations being, um, uh, filed or have been filed, uh, including one by, uh, by cell along with Skina wild. Um, so any, you know, joining, uh, joining forces with those, um, organizations, uh, contributing, um, donating money to um, to their cause in terms of the you know helping fund that legal issue um, so that's really the, only, the in terms of the um, support behind the, the litigation aspect of it
2: mm-hmm.
4: if, if people are interested though in uh, you know staying informed and getting involved um, we can uh, provide some information maybe you can add to your website uh, if people want to follow up, and also, uh, it's important to remember that there are people protesting this right now on Leilu Island, uh, outside of Prince Rupert, and winter's coming. So, if uh, you have donations of warm clothing mm-hmm. uh, or monetary means, uh, there are people out there every single day. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So that, like, they are they're uh, exercising their uh, their occupancy rights. Yeah. I guess there are
4: culturally about. modified trees on Leilu Island, uh, mm-hmm. which have been there for. You know, hundreds of years, which would be removed for the plant. Mm. And as we also know, there's a very important salmon habitat just off the Flora Bank, which is uh, some of the best eelgrass in mm-hmm. the entire province for Skeena salmon.
3: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one one final topic that I want to talk about is kind of the 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 effect that the U.S. election is going to have. And there's a little bit of uncertainty because um, you know now that you know there's a president-elect Trump, uh, there's going to be uh, sort of renewed interest in resource extraction projects in the U S he's going to presumably open up a lot more land for that. Uh, how is that going to affect like the, the BC side of things?
5: Uh, it's really tough to say. Um, I know going into the election, the U S election, there was um, for instance, issue with the softwood lumber, the trade between that and, um, but with regards to this, I don't know if there's going to be much of um, an effect um, just because of, I think this this is something that kind of stems outside of the U.S.-Canada uh, relations, I believe.
4: It is very disconcerting, though, um, yes. that Donald Trump's platform would uh, renege on the agreements made in Paris and Copenhagen. And uh, it's, it, if they set a precedence for other countries uh, that are already developed to, you know, kind of flaunt around our environmental goals and, uh, and platforms, then it, it won't be hard for other countries to follow suit. And I think it's really great now that uh, we're looking at maybe defining our policies as being, once again, not American.
0: Sounds good. We'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Hugo. Oh, and if people do want to find out more, where do they go?
5: Um, well, they can find us on Facebook, um, Society of Geography Students, um, and also just to add, we will be have uh, we have actually filmed this, and it will be airing on Shaw TV within the next couple of weeks. So, if you um, again like us on Facebook, uh, that Society of Geography Students, and the acronym is Sogs, S O G S, you can find out more information there, um, including contact information for either of us. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Have a nice day. And now I'm pleased to be joined uh, by two folks from the Martlet: staff writer Cormac O'Brien and editor-in-chief Miles Sauer. Good morning, all. Hi, Hugo. Thanks for having us. Um, so uh, one of the first things uh, that you're covering this week is a possible reading break extension.
3: Yeah. So Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I can talk about that. Um we were at the senate meeting on november 4th i think it was and the senate committee on agenda and governance um brought a little update on a proposal to extend the fall reading break extension so it took a full week um this proposal actually originally came to the senate a year ago i think um and they've been kind of working on it on and off since then but the thing that they brought forward at this meeting was that they can't find a way to expand the reading break within the current, um, like parameters of the school year. If that makes sense, I don't. I don't mm-hmm. quite have the wording right there. But basically, like they can't add another two days without kind of shifting how the rest of the semester is arranged. And so, one of the things, one of the options that they're considering and that they were looking for input from the Senate on was looking at the possibility of Sunday exams, hmm. because adding uh, two days of Sunday exams would allow for them to then take away like two days of classes. Cause you could like bump the semester back a couple of days, mm-hmm. basically. So yeah, yeah. And so they basically got the, the, this committee was told, yeah, like look into that possibility. We can see if that works. So consultations are kind of going to start going,
0: um, So it hasn't been decided yet. They're still kind of unsure about.
3: It's a very we're very unsure about this kind of thing. They the committee came to the Senate kind of like, yeah, we're thinking Sunday exams might be the way to do it. But we don't know what should we do. And the Senate other senators said, well, if the possibility is there, like, yeah, obviously, like, look at it. And a few people said, like, consult with students, consult with profs, and see what they want because there are some other options that they looked at too, which included um, putting the reading break uh, along with, like, Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. So having the fall reading break take place in October instead. Um, But one of the fears that I guess came out of some consultations on that uh, possibility were that if students who are new – and they're super stressed out after that first month of class, and they go back for a full week in October, uh, some were concerned that students might not want to come back. Whoa. Whereas if you have the reading break two months in, and they're kind of more invested, I guess, then they may they may want to come back. I don't know. It's kind of odd. Um, to
6: me, that sounds a little bit like maybe instead of worrying about you know, the length of time that students will be away in which they won't want to return, maybe worry about reasons why students wouldn't want to return in the first place.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there, one of the others, another senator said, like, why not bring counseling services in on these consultations and see like what the best option is there? Um, but somebody also said, if the whole spirit of expanding Reading Break is to kind of alleviate the burden on students who are stressed out at that time of year, big time, would adding... Sunday exams kind of go against the spirit of that. So that was one question that came up and there's so many other like implications and things that would need to be considered if Sunday exams got added, like labor kind of things. Mm -hmm. Um, You're adding like a whole other day of work for faculty and invigilators and that kind of thing. Uh, Also religious exemptions, like there would be a lot more about that. I guess there's been like an uptick in uh, special exemptions for, for students, like for exams, and they, there was some concern that that might be more of an issue if there were exams on Sundays. But
0: mm-hmm. yeah, um, let's move on to the the UVSS and sort of the the fight the fees issue. Um, so, th- are you saying that there's still been like continuing controversy by the UVSS choosing not to? go into
3: that yeah well there was a little bit i remember the last time you and i talked it was before the rally took place um since then the rally happened it was a pretty good turnout there's about 80 or so students but there was some vocal you know uvss isn't here and that's their choice but we're, we don't agree with it and there was some some discussion on social media where some people were kind of choked that the uvss didn't show up Um, and so we dug into that a little bit and yeah, from what I've kind of gathered, it really just comes down to the fact that this was a Canadian Federation of Students event and some of the directors didn't really feel like it was appropriate for the UVSS to support that when the CFS had sued us in the past.
0: Mm -hmm. So, and, uh, UVic wasn't the only, uh, student society that elected not to participate. Is that Right.
3: Yeah, I found out after the fact that Camosun College, their student society, had actually chosen to do the same thing. Um, They're still members of the CFS, though, and kind of, I mean, this just gets into, like, this whole body of student politics that is just, there's so many different parties involved, it's kind of hard to untangle. But, yeah, UVic, Camosun, both student societies opted not to be involved with that.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Cormac, um, I wanted to bring you in today because of like what's been going on in in the U.S. And, you know, we were talking a little bit um, before the U.S. election, um, you know, about the chances of a Trump victory. And you had uh, lived through something like this before. You want to sort of get into that?
6: Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of funny. I didn't really I think I was you know, I don't want to. I don't want to claim that I was ahead of the curve. I, you know, I thought Trump was as much of a joke as most people did when he started running in the primaries and even to an extent in the general election. Uh, Our business manager, Alex Coates, was kind of the first person that I interacted with that said he's going to win, you know, and she was pretty certain early on that Trump was going to win. And I, you know, I didn't really take it very seriously, as most didn't. Uh, and then Brexit happened. I've got a lot of family in England. I grew up there, uh, and then moved here about ten years ago. So I saw a lot on social media and read a lot in the news about Brexit. And to me, the fact that the Leave campaign won there kind of alerted me to the fact that this is a real possibility in in America as well. And and where you know I was still hoping that Hillary Clinton would win. Um, and I still thought she she could. I was I think I was a little more open to the possibility of a Trump presidency due to the fact that we'd seen a really similar thing happen in England. Uh, You know, a lot of people after this election said, you know, well, how could our polls have been so misleading? And the same thing was said in England over Brexit. The polls right up until the last minute were saying that the stay campaign was going to win. And then, you know, you know, shock horror, it didn't. Uh, And a similar kind of rhetoric was used, this kind of divisive, you know, isolationist uh, rhetoric was used in England, and the same thing happened in America. And again, people didn't think it would work, and it did. So, yeah, to me, it was it was kind of less of a shock, and I was a little more surprised that fewer people also didn't think it was going to be a shock. I, I thought we might have seen so many similarities in the world, not even just last year, but you know, in history, that we wouldn't be as surprised as we are now.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I know some uh, students who are uh, coming in from Canada to the U.S. Uh, and they're like sort of thinking about like what's what their chances are going to be. Like, do you do you think it's too early to see like if people from the U.S. are going to be like coming into Canada? Oh man, I
6: don't know. I mean, we saw obviously the the crash in immigration. Um we, I think Justin Trudeau's lifted visas on Mexican immigration, isn't that right? So we might be seeing makes, more of that. I think so, yeah. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, it's definitely a possibility. But again, I would caution those people, if if they're listening to CFUV right now, that uh, we saw it happen in England, we saw it happen in America. It can happen in Canada, too. I mean, Canada is not some kind of magical land-exempt from, you know, divisive isolationist rhetoric, we see it with politicians like Kelly Leach, who's on the front cover of McLean's. Like this is this is not something that's just happening in a few countries. This is a global
0: problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, guys, uh, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks. And that's it from us at You in the Ring. We've got uh, Katie Sage up next with In Rainbows. So stay tuned for that. I'm going to leave you uh, with a track by Tobacco. It's called Gods in Heat. Have a good Tuesday, everyone.